like when we do. Well, you can see them. I mean, that's why if you want to join and sit in the side, I actually encourage people that you can see Elizabeth, you can see me, they're right behind your head. I mean, it, there's a certain justification. I may just do this in the setup of just keep making a U. That yeah. it's just, because oftentimes we, uh, Judith was intransigent. She'd always just sit up, you know, she'd sit there no matter what. She wouldn't <laughs> get her son's side. But, but um, yeah, more of a U-shape that we can welcome our online people in. Because at the end of the year last year, sometimes we had more people online than we did in person. We were having about, you know, 8 to 10 or 12 in each spot. So. All right, well, it's 10.30. Let's go for it. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Morning, Adriana. Joined us. Good to see you. Um, so, you know, you, you go through August with a month off, and you think, oh, yeah, I take a month off. I'll say, oh, oh, oh Bible says starting. What are you going to do? So I, I, I just had to make an executive call after last year. When, and since we, we studied John's gospel and then Revelation, it seemed as though um, First John was, a, was a, uh, a sensible thing to begin with. It gives us a relatively brief study and, and starts us out and, and so that's why I chose it and um, there's a lot of um, and I was going back in some commentaries there's a lot when you study these epistles or anything in the New Testament so much of the commentaries gets caught up in, in who modern scholars think wrote it uh, the, the tradition of the church rather unbroken until very modern times was that the Apostle John wrote the gospel that bears his name Revelation and 1st John now there's a 1st John, a 2nd John and a 3rd John and there are some, it's possible they're all just um, the same John there's some allusion in the ancient tradition to somebody or, or mention in the tradition of a, someone called the Elder John who, because he was called the Elder John, may be distinct from the Apostle John, and so we don't really know. But one of the things that always gotten me, because this this was big in the like the Pauline epistles, we didn't really write this. It's like, okay, this is scripture. And a lot of times he didn't really write it was a way of then we didn't have to do what it said or something like that, of discrediting the whole source of the thing. And one of the most compelling reasons to believe that, that John wrote all these things, or at least, when you say John wrote, um, you know, you could have certainly schools, you know, John could write something and people could, who were disciples could edit and, and compile. It's not quite like today with word processors and correction and that, although in the same way, I mean, if I wrote something and I had someone proof it, you know, feel free to, you know, you, you would feel free to, oh, here, he made a 
writing error here, we'll, we'll correct that. Um, but all these things talk about the same things and use the same images and symbols. Um, a lot of what they, they used to say that, well, Revelation, John didn't write that because it talks about, well, the language of Revelation is different. The, the words used in relationship to the vocabulary of John's Gospel or First John, Revelation is different. Which I, you know, my, my point is, you have a vision in which you're caught up into heaven, you might, and people are telling you what to write, too, you might, it might sound a little different than a, you know, a, a, a gospel you composed in a more sort of a balanced and literary way. And so, um, and also, I've never been entirely persuaded by the idea that, well, this epistle was written by him, and this is linguistically, some of the words are different. The idea that there is always some entirely consistent way that everybody writes, unless you, and, and I, I, maybe there is this field of study, that every author over the range of their works op operates within a semant semantic range of words used, and we know if, if he falls out of that or she falls out of that, that's not his. I'm not sure that anyone's ever done that, but you make these assumptions that don't follow from from the. Uh, so there's that. So we'll. I think the tradition that the Apostle John wrote this, and it certainly makes sense as we begin to, to look at the text itself. So let's start with this um, in First John, and just um, we're doing a relatively short chapter, but what I want to highlight and, and compare and, and see the similar themes in, in the scriptures here. Um, so let's, let's read verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, and this word beginning is important because we're going to look at two other passages, John 1, and then go back to Genesis 1, which clearly John is thinking about, where this word beginning is used. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So, what's being emphasized here in these words? So he's so eyewitnessing. Clearly, there's a witness aspect here, which is a big theme of John's gospel. John is saying that. So, and we'll talk about in a minute what from the beginning that which was from the beginning. We'll talk about that. That's a word I want to flush out a little bit. Um, so something is the beginning, which now. Um, we, and, and, and if we take this to be John the Apostle, who would the we be? The Apostles. So the apostolic band of eyewitnesses who saw um, with our eyes, looked upon, um, the, um, the, the difference of, of seen and looked upon is, is you know, we, we saw it and then we, we understood it. Uh, and we've handled it. So we've touched it. Um, 
concerning the word of life. Now, now let's um, turn to John's gospel and just highlight. You can keep one finger in one and one finger in the other. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, for those. So, John's gospel begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, which gives us some clue to the beginning here. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then... Um, John's gospel picks up more of what's clearly going to refer to Genesis, where he says he was in the beginning with God, and here clearly it's the beginning of creation. Because we remember in Genesis, and that's our third passage I want to highlight here, um, Genesis 1-1, that's just the very first verse of the Bible, so no problem getting there. Um, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Note also, we're going to come into the concept of darkness in John. So I, I want to highlight is that the, the point of reference that John has for what he's going to present to us is Genesis, the creation. Darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now, a lot of John 1 is going to be all about light and darkness. And he saw the light, it was good. What's interesting about Genesis 1 here, and um, a lot of things interesting about Genesis 1 here, but one, one is that... So, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, what's the source of this light? What's normally our source of light in creation? Thus, So, when in creation was the sun created? When in the act of creation was the sun created? Later. So, there's no sun or moon when God says, let there be light, and there was light. So, there is a light that predates the creation of temporal lights, the sun and the moon. Um, this informs, if you remember at the end of Revelation, our study last time, when um, it says, you know, that there, there is no, I believe it mentioned there is no sun, but the Lamb is its light. And so when Jesus talks about, I am the light of the world, it's not just like metaphorically, I got some wisdom to help you see, but that in the gen in Genesis, God, there's light that, that, that is pre-existent, and he is that. He is the, illuminate, he is the illumination, the, 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 um, the person of the divine trinity for whom we receive understanding and sight and able to see 
Well, because um, because we dwell in him as his body, the church, as an extension of him being the light, we are called to be the light. That's that's our vocation. And so that, that it follows from that. That's the clear... Um, implication of that. Now, there's something also um, undergirding, uh, I think, uh, John's Gospel and First John, which we could touch on for a, a, a bit here, um, to understand um, what we might call heresy. Because most of what's written, well, a lot of what's written in the New Testament, a lot of the tradition, a lot of our theology, was clarified, was developed in response to heresy. It's not like the early church wasn't inherently in their heads like modern Western world is. I think, therefore, I am, which is being discredited of that sort of modern idea. They didn't. The theology of church didn't develop because people said, we got to figure this out. It's but because somebody has said something wrong. And when they said something wrong, you began, no, that's wrong. So clarifying what's right. So one of the ancient heresies that seems to be operating in the realm of, of Ephesus, where John hung out, was an ancient heresy, which, which has, it, it's, it's not one consistent thing, but it has certain things. I want, sometimes it can be called Gnosticism. It also had other words like uh, Docetism. But both of these things had a, a the essential component was um, was what what is called a dualism that says that spirit is good and physical things are bad. So there were, um, in the early church, there were Gnostic heresies, um, and they they tended, they were very elaborate ones, and some church fathers wrote against these. One of the famous church fathers named Irenaeus wrote um, uh, a whole treatise against the heresies, and this was the, this is the main heresy. There are various Gnostic heresies, but what they, they believed was that... Um, the creation itself was an act of sin on the part of angels. And that salvation then was a matter of escaping the confines of the created order to once again achieve the realm of pure spirit. And in, in general, the way to achieve that salvation was through the, get the gnosis, the, the knowledge, which is typically was secret and esoteric. That is, the, the special teacher who had the revelation had it. And so you needed he come and give you the gnosis and share the gnosis. And through the, this knowledge, you would then be delivered from the corruption of, of, of the physical into the purely spiritual. And we can understand why this, this language can infect Christianity um, by a wrong understanding of New Testament terms, especially in English. 
uh, where the Greek word uh, sarx is translated as flesh. And St. Paul will say, um, uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you could, if, if you didn't have a little bit of, of perspective, you would think, oh, everything we enjoy doing in the body is a bad thing. We have to put it to death. We have to be purely spiritual. But um, that's a heresy. Because, and so a lot, so the, that's that backdrop of that kind of framework of, of understanding Gnostic heresy that they were opposed to creation. And therefore, in the New Testament, they are also opposed to um, the physical, incarnational, sacramental realities of redemption. Gnostics hated sacraments because it's, this is my body. No, he would be enclosed in this thing. Um, So a lot of what we're dealing with in John, we've seen, we've handled, we've touched, is to make the point that um, redemption is physical. Like the original creation, God made things, and he said, it's good. It's in, it's in harmony with God. The Spirit created it according to the pattern of the Word, and it's good. What made it bad was not it being physical, but it being disobedient. So the, the fall of Genesis 3, where human beings took the creation and said, essentially, this is mine to do with as I will, that is the, and that's the flesh. That's us doing what we will with God's physical creation. And so in redemption, because it's the incarnation, the word is made flesh. God, again, you have something created that is good. That's what we're dealing with at Christmas. When we come to the Christmas crib, it's God. Here's the beginning of creation because God saw it was good. In a fallen, disordered, bent world, here is this goodness in human flesh. And... Um, but Gnostics didn't believe that. They believed that in, in the New Testament, if Jesus was in a body and he looked like died on the cross, he only appeared to be in a body. He took on the form of this so he could communicate the Gnosis, but it wasn't really physical. And he certainly didn't die on the cross and, and bleed and hurt, because God can't bleed and hurt. He has to be above that. And... The more I think about this, the more I realize that this is really such an enduring and quintessential heresy, because that's what people object to about God, that, 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 it, that, that it's, um, they don't like the way God redeems the world in a very physical way. Good Friday is offensive to, to because what's the Son of God being beaten and killed for. God, what are you doing? And by extension, you look at the world, all the suffering, all the pain. What are you doing? I disapprove of your method. But that's the method. And, and that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and in that dwelling among us, um, suffering. 
And he didn't save us from suffering, but he created a situation where he redeemed the very suffering itself so that he is present with us in our suffering. And our suffering now has a new horizon. It's not death, but death and resurrection. We die with him, we rise with him. So what the incarnation does is not take us away from all this, but redeem all this. But this is caught up in the physicality of this thing. And yet God made a world and said it's good. And so that world fell through sin. And now in the New Testament, what John is saying, John is, is really this, you know, preeminent apostle of the incarnation. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, was made flesh. And therefore flesh must be good. This must be a good thing. And then, the physical creation, physical creation, it started, it was created by evil beings, fallen angels. They're on, it's all that. And, yeah. Now, derivations of that allowed. Uh, conflicting positions. So, for example, sometimes the idea that flesh didn't mean anything could lead to a more licentious, you know, this doesn't really matter, so I can just do what I want to do because my true salvation is in the spirit. So you, you could have a, a, a kind of, of um, labeling of the body as evil that can lead you to renounce any physical thing and extreme asceticism that denies anything is good in the body. Um, or you could have an extreme licentiousness. Both were saying that the body doesn't, it's a thing you're transcending, as you say. We should note something about, about the spiritual tradition, too, because I mentioned asceticism. You know, we talk about fasting. and There are extremes in the tradition that, that, I, that I, you know, I, I question about, um, or we might question about, the, the, the extent to which people discipline the body. But the thing we, the fundamental thing we always must understand about bodily discipline, fasting, self-denial, is that, that they are both rooted in, in the truth that the body is good. And when we say no to something, it's not because the thing we're saying no to is bad. It's because we're training our desires to use things in a right way. And um, so that's what you have to understand that, that, that the problem is our desires are not, we don't control them. Um, they control us in our natural state. So when we learn to say, like we fast, have a Wednesday day of fasting, we fast during Lent, fast during Advent, uh, why do we do that? So that we can learn to say no, so that our yes can be more free. Because unless I can say no, then I, I really, I'm not free to say yes. I might just have to say yes. And that's called, you know, addiction or, or, um, and so we have to fight. That's, we have to, we're fighting to learn to, to live life in the body as Christ did. We could, 
know, he could sit down and have a, a party with the tax collector and sinners, but he could also say no if that wasn't appropriate to, to, the, to the ministry is called to do. So I, I guess I want to link all these things in your mind that the goodness of the creation, the fact of the incarnation as the beginning of redeeming the creation, and now the witnesses in John that we saw this. And what's going to be essentially drawn out here is the fact of eyewit of historical reality witnessed by people who saw eyewitnesses who testified to you, and therefore you should receive our witness. Versus the Gnostic teacher who claims an esoteric knowledge, but where did it come from? And this is incidentally the origin of the doctrine of apostolic succession in the church. Because it, it, it was that you go down maybe a couple generations in some church in Asia Minor uh, or uh, you know Ephesus and you have some teacher coming in who's saying, you know, I've got this secret knowledge. The question would be, well, where'd that come from? And when we found that St. John consecrated this guy and gave him the teaching, and he consecrated this guy and gave him the teaching, then this is the guy we're going to ask, is this right or wrong? And you, where'd you come from? Well, so there, there are two preeminent modern Gnostic faiths, which are what? Well, those are, those, there, there, there's a lot of things like that. These are pretty, these are, uh, uh, so, one is a Greek. Mormon. The other, what makes Islam and Mormonism qualify as Gnostic by the, by the, what I've just presented? They just have their own prophets. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where did Muhammad get it from? He has the secret Gnostic esoteric vision. Who confirms that vision? Who else saw it with him? Nobody. Joseph Smith had the vision. Who saw it with him? Who confirmed? And this is why John says, we have seen. because the God, And this is always the rejoinder to, to the Gnostic was, the multiplicity of witnesses, four gospel accounts confirming the, the, the thing you saw. Um, and this is why for us, when we say things like the Nicene Creed, if someone wants to object to that, that is the thing that has been bequeathed to us in the apostolic faith that the church has always believed, and those who were by who, who depart from that are by definition heretic. They're wrong. This is the truth. What we have seen touched handled. And incidentally, so for example, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, it reflects this um, anti-Gnostic tendency that says that the body is, is bad because the Apostles' Creed says it was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. There's no appearance to do, there's no appearing to do that in that. That's a physical reality. But like some people still get the 
gift of prophecy. So that's where I got confused because I was like, no one can get anything after that except for. But well, but, but but prophecy, as St. John will say to us in First John, test the spirits. How do you test the spirit? You test it by the rule of faith. And and so if if somebody's telling us something that's con- is conflicting with the Nicene Creed and some clear teaching that the church will understood, no, that's a, that's a false spirit. But genuine prophecy now, this is something that... Um, Prophecy in the New Testament um, tended to be the, the, the apostolic ministry of the, of the word, which gave the authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament in the light of the new, given by the eyewitnesses who now shared their witness. After the apostolic era, and, and, and the, the, the revelation given in the Incarnation, clarified by the apostles and the tradition of the church, um, the idea of prophecy as being a brand new way of understanding something Jesus did is probably heresy. For us, the prophetic word would, would be more likely to center around how this revelation and God's word applies to your life right now, calling you to repent. Like we had David this morning or, and Nathan in morning prayer. There's a prophetic word. David, you're the man. And so the prophetic word will come to us. The prophecy will be, oh, yeah, I see that now. Or, oh, I, I, I get understanding about something I didn't get before, but it's not contrary to the deposit itself. And this is why it's very important for prophets to be held accountable. And, and the more aberrant, the, the prophetic teacher is the less likely is to be accountable to anything. And that's, if you look at some of the more publicized church problems out there, um, that's usually the issue, lack of accountability. Um, you, you uh, especially in a consumer culture where the, the popular pastor became larger, larger than the thing itself. And, and not only does nobody is able to tell him that he's wrong, but um, they're all afraid because they all rely on the brand too. <laughs> so it's 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 uh, it's really a problem. Actually, I'll digress to one other point. It's really a, a prophetic problem in our culture in the sense that. Um, Everybody wants to say they're going to offer a prophetic word. And, you know, conservatives want to offer it about the liberals, and liberals want to offer it about the conservatives. You have a truly prophetic word, you have to offer it about yourself. And the problem we have in our culture with, with, with those who want to confront the evil is they're never aware of their own participation in it. And, and so... When you really dial it down, everyone's prophetic word in a, in a public and this tribal, divisive way we do it, just follow the money. And, and you, whatever your issue is, it, there it is. I mean, we, we can act like we're, uh, for example, let's take one issue. Take the abortion issue. Moral issue. 
this is a billion dollar industry that's going to support, that's going to throw so many dollars at always making this available. That's what drives it. It's not, it's in our culture. Um, and wherever you find, so the prophetic word, yeah, we're, you know, you're, we're for it, we're for something, but there's always, you know, uh, and you get this, the political problem is, whatever your issue is, you think you have a more high ground, you're also getting a ton of money from someone who wants you to do it because they're making money on it. And that's left and right and everywhere. It's why there's no prophetic word in that space. Because until you can utter a word and not need any result from it, and be willing to die for it, if you get nothing for it, you're not a prophet. Our Lord, prophet of Israel, died. Because no one, but he didn't stop saying. Our people say, wow. How do we get? How do we? So that's why it's all compromised. That is the chief reason you'll never see us jump onto political cause here. Not that there aren't issues that are significant. We're pro-life. Put that on the table, bar none. But but you can get on this thing. You're starting lobbying for it. All of a sudden, you're in a political process where you're, you know, you're 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 you're, you're deal swapping and you're trying to do this. You're justifying things. It's like that's not the gospel main thing about being pro-life is we're pro-life. Don't have an abortion. Value life in our community. Help bear witness to the world of a different way to live. We start there. And then we can talk about, yeah, people shouldn't do it, but, but there's a lot of this, what they're doing. And one of the problems the church has had is it's been complicit in this. Church has to begin Judgment has to begin with the household of God. We have to live differently and suffer for living differently. Then we can bear witness to people, hey, come come join us in this way of life. That's what made the early church attractive. That's what caused it to grow from, by Rodney Starks' estimate, 10,000 in the 90s AD to 4 to 6 million in the early 300s. They lived a way of life that was different than the culture. They died for what they believed in, and it drew people to them. In our culture, what we've done with faith is we've made it popular, and now it's, it has no resonance with anybody. We have to turn around to start living by what we say we believe in. And that's kind of, you know, our reorientation of ministry is, is, is to focus on who really wants to do this and not worry about yelling at the culture what's not doing. We have to do this, and we haven't. Daniel prophesied in Babylon. We prayed to God, even though Daniel did it pretty good himself. He confessed, we haven't done this. The church has saying, we haven't done it. Now we have to start doing it differently. All right. Um, let's go back to John 1 and, and discuss some of that. So um, we've looked upon our hands of handle concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, revealed to us. And this is the incarnation. And from the beginning, back to that one in the beginning, some commentators will say that the beginning here is the beginning of the gospel, that is, Jesus coming. So we were with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and we're witnesses to it. Um, but you have a dual horizon there, clearly because of the connection with John's gospel and the beginning of creation, or the beginning 
um, that beginning is that which was in the beginning, that is Jesus, the, the word which is in the beginning, which was made flesh in the beginning of the revelation. You have both of those beginnings. Life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you. So, here's the eyewitness account, and here is apostolic succession. But I want to say something about this. Let me, let me finish this verse. Eternal life, which was with the Father, it was manifested to us. Um, notice here that the witness is not just two facts. And the witness of the church is, yeah, we have the Bible, we have the creeds, we believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, and we, we, um, we've got his trinity and all those things, but we don't believe them in a way that, 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 that is like we're a debating club when you take on the false philosophy of the world. This life is something we experience. We're baptized into Christ. We've been given the gift of the Spirit. This gives us a vocation to live a life of prayer. As we live a life of prayer, we experience the presence of Christ in our lives. Our witness is that. And this is what John is saying. We've seen this. We've experienced this. Not, I know some facts about this. And that's a, a problem sometimes in the um, cultural, you know, even among traditionalists like that, yeah, your heritage, we believe this, we believe that, but yeah, but our faith is not a series of doctrines. It's a life in, a, in Christ. It's the doctrines explain the experience to us. The doctrines are the right explanation of the actual life. But the life itself is the key thing. And so John is being clear here. We've seen and bear witness and declare to you eternal life, which is with the Father and was manifested to us. So we're, we're a faithful witness. And John, remember in John's gospel, witnesses are a really important thing. In the Jewish tradition, you need two or three witnesses. So John is said, you know, all this is we, not I, which a Gnostic would say. He bear witness. Verse 3, um, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So the um, you have three things in these first three verses. You have what was from the beginning, which, which the apostles have seen. And now, they're, verse 2, they're witness to you, to us. And then third, the purpose of the witness is that you may have fellowship. And the word fellowship is koinonia, or communion. Uh, the word fellowship in, in our time gets to be a sappy. We're going to have fellowship together. Like, and it, it refers to what I like social time. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying um, the fellowship here is the communion that, that as we have, have seen and received the Spirit from Christ, so now we testify to you and we will give the Spirit to you 
you receive the Spirit in your baptism, and we have communion with the Father through His Son in that. We have a life together. And that's why it's very, very important we understand that the church is not a doctrine, but a life. What we do together, our mutual life, our worship together, our social expression of that worship, our concern for those outside of our borders, those are essential to the life. And that, and that's often what's missing in the life of the church, because it's the doctrinal kind of thing. So the purpose of the witness is that they may have fellowship. Now, this is what was, let's be clear about something, this is what was lost in the beginning through sin. Sin, in Genesis 3, took the creation God made good and brought evil into it and took the human condition which was created, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, which created a harmony with God because a separation because of sin. The Old Covenant was all about how we bridge that gap, but now Christ has, has, has fulfilled it. And we're brought through the gift of the Spirit. This is where John, um, when he sees the apostles on Easter night, and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, it's a clear echo of Genesis 2-7, where God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, He's restoring life to dead people. And the whole point here is that apart from this communion, we're dead. And that's quintessentially New Testament doctrine. St. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But now, in Christ, you've been brought into, through baptism and the gift of the Spirit, this new life in which you have fellowship. That's the essential thing. So the passage out of Ezekiel 37, Dr. Same thing. Ezekiel's prophesying the resurrection of Israel, which happens in the person of Jesus on Easter, and it happens in his body through the, the spirit which breathed out to us. This also really corrects another error that people miss is like. The idea of salvation is a present reality. You think, oh, well, why would God send people to hell? Or we hope to get to heaven. Those are ultimate destinies for completions. But the Bible is very clear. This is the life we have now. And to be brought into fellowship with God in Christ and the Spirit now is to have eternal life, which means to tell us of that is resurrection and life in the world to come. We have it now. We're not waiting to hear about it. Conversely, to reject that life is to, is to be, remain in the state of death. God doesn't send you there. You're there. We're there all by ourselves in the natural human condition. And this is important to understand that framework. He's bearing witness to this life. And verse 4 says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. We should be pretty happy about that. We have life in Christ. Eternal life now. We should be full of joy. Why do you think we're not full of joy more? 
going back into that life of death. We pay attention to things in the world and we get depressed and discouraged about what the world is doing. We, we, we focus all our attention there. We neglect our prayer. We watch TV. But I saw these. Why are all these things happening? Well, I, I guess the the the, the erroneous. I mean, so I you know I would say, of course, our our, our God. Um, sent his son who died brutally on the cross. So again, we have to change our paradigm as a church. People might not like what we have to say, but it's very clear what the New Testament says. God is with us in our suffering. He didn't come to eliminate it. And, and, and because his own son died brutally, and of the we that John's talking about, if you talk about the apostolic band, everyone was brutally martyred except for John, who spent much of his life in exile. So the idea that, wow, what, what's God doing? It, this is not, it's, it, it's hard, but it's, but it's, it's again people wanting to save the world their own way. And God didn't come, we, we don't believe that this world is perfectible, apart from what God has done in Christ. So the church is, is really called to ask people, to draw people into this life. It's not called to make the world a better place. And that false perspective really sets Christians off, because we just have to do goodism, we're going we're to end poverty. No, you're not. Not till the Lord comes. Now, you should feed the poor. Why should you feed the poor? Because that's your witness that you care. I mean, but you don't do it for a result to solve a problem to fix it. You do it because of what it is. Why do you love? You love because because you you know a God who is love and you have been loved and so you love. That's who you are. It's not for a result. Do the right whether whether you get anything from it or not. Um. God causes his son to rise on the just and the unjust. Yes, Carol? I was just going to say, because you love. Yeah. Yeah. Because you love. Yeah. Because you love. Yeah. Well, sometimes you get nailed for it. Job. <laughs> Seem to do all the right things. So, you, sometimes we have. Because he but, but, you know, I mean, we're, I, I would say something, though, that, that, that we live, you know, we, we are very uh, privileged in the area we live. Um, and so often our lives operate on a, yeah, we do good, we get good. There are plenty of people who live in persecuted areas who do good and get nailed for it. There's some Coptic Christians who do really good, get their church bombed, and get multiple people killed on Easter Day. But notice what they, if, if you paid attention, I get like, Bulls in some open doors. A few days later, they're 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 praying for the attackers because they're living this life in Christ. And and 
And the point what God, Christ really gives us is the reality that whether we live or die, we have this life. Death can't take the life from us. And in our culture, faith has become an attempt to make this life better. And it was never that. It will, as we live it, make this life better. Um, but it's not the goal of it. And sometimes it won't. Sometimes faith will make, sometimes things will come upon us um, that we that, that don't make any sense. Talking to a member last night who talked about a friend of his whose daughter got leukemia. They were very devout Christians. She died. Challenged the mother's the mother's faith. And she she really, that's not news. People are dying of leukemia every single day. And it's a touch. It's going to touch some of us sometimes. We have you know we've had some tragic things happen here at, at St. Matthew's. I think over the years, we're like wow. I, how that? That doesn't seem fair that a, a guy's son walked out just the street to get a toy and got hit on two days after Christmas and died. I don't think he sinned that day. So the whole idea that that, that the Christian, that, that God, who the story of the scriptures has to convince the world of, yeah, nobody likes the way God is doing that. But God is doing it that way. He's making all things new through the cross, through our participation in the cross, through our sufferings, through his, and that's the way it is. And we're witnesses. We don't have to convince anybody. And guess what? All the programs they have aren't working because they're all caught up in this self-interested, you know, whatever it is, how we're going to save the planet this way or that way. A lot of the, the minor issues are, you know, right and good, but they're all caught up in this economic political, moral compromise that never is a secular issue, are they going to say that? Yeah. Our joy. So we, we were, the, the first Christians had joy, and one of the interesting things about this joy is in the history of the church, it seems to be most evident in the Christians who suffer the most. First Christians were persecuted, and they were full of joy. Read the New Testament. It's an astounding passage. Acts 4, 5, they all, Peter and John were arrested. They're beaten by the council. And they, they departed from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. When was the last time you suffered for the name of Jesus and started singing a song? St. Paul in the jail, being whipped, is bleeding. And he and his partner start singing. Holy Spirit overwhelms the jail. So we have to think about what we attend to, that the joy of Christ is in the midst of it, because what the joy is comes from is that we have a life that none of this can take away. It can be painful, but the pain itself, the participation in the cross, is the means to participating in the resurrection. So that's how our joy is full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Let there be light, and there was light. And when there was light, there was no more darkness, although he divided the day from... Um, and, and so in this way, this is a theme that, that came up in 
in um, John's gospel a lot. Uh, I am the light of the world. People who walk in this light don't have darkness, but abide in light. Um, Judas, when he left the Last Supper, he went out and it was night. He went into darkness. Nicodemus at first um, came to Jesus by night. But at the end, when he's getting the body, he comes in the day as a believer. Um, so light is walking in that pre-existent light, let there be light, that now has been manifested with the incarnation, now shines on us in Christ, through the word, in the spirit, we, have, we walk in the light, and there's no darkness at all. Light of Christ illuminates our life. There is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, here's a preeminent, again, rejoinder to the Gnostic who said, your behavior doesn't matter because the body doesn't count. John is saying, no. Walk in the light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, not doing what he calls us to do, we lie. You're not practicing the truth. You cannot sell it, you cannot separate your behavior from your faith. Now, there's always the reality when we talk about that, because that can become moralism. He has to do this. And he's clearly, John's going to show us that this life in Christ is not free from sin. But it doesn't hide from the verdict that the Holy Spirit brings. So, let, so he says in um, verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's interesting the tie there to the fellow, the communion with one another. So there's a lot of, um, sometimes people, I don't know that I need to go to church to be saved or that kind of stuff. But a lot of times the idea of church is itself a little bit problematic if it means I go, to, I go to the building on Sunday where I don't really know anybody. They don't know me, and I kind of hide. And that's the, the essence of, that's not really the fellowship with one another. The idea of an actual living a life of prayer together, knowing, you know, I mean, listen, really knowing people takes time to really know people. So we have to be patient. We can't, you know, but... But, but it, it clearly, the full expression of this fellowship with Christ means a community that walks together in it. And that seems to be, he's saying, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Connection with others in a deep way helps us to grow. Other people provide a witness to us of our forgiveness when they love us as we are, as they get to know us. Um, knowing others kind of progresses from surface judgments 
Yeah, you're out. Yeah, I did that. Then you get to know someone, you begin to go, oh, I realize what your life is about. And then grace, sympathy, and the experience of love in community is what really makes us want to be better. And really, if we think about union with God and with a, a community in Christ, when we enjoy that, the reason we don't want to sin is not we're afraid to, um, you know, God's going to punish us when we go to hell. It is, if you've tasted closeness with God and closeness with other people in that, it's nothing's worth it to go away from that. Go walk away from, from that union and have what? A moment of something after which you feel guilty, ashamed, and afraid. So, walk in the light, we have fellowship. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. And, here, and he goes on to say, now, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, walking in the light, again, doesn't mean we have no sin. It means like when we come to church and we say, you do truly and earnest repent of your sins, that you come with a heart open to say, okay, what? let the light shine. Go, oh. And we're willing to say, yeah, okay. And, and if somebody comes to us and says, you know, this happened, you know, I'm sorry about that. Instead of like, no, I didn't do that. Your fault. You did it. There's a there's no a willingness to 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 you know uh, to own uh, our lives and to grow in self understanding. It's not always just a matter of you did some obviously bad thing, but as we grow, we're aware of layers of motives we have. Because we, we're good at having a surface motive, we're fighting for the good, but underneath that it might be, there's really an older battle behind that that we're bringing to the table here. So, um, King David this morning in uh, our, our lesson was, you know, becomes the model of the, of the penitent. Confronted by Nathan, I've sinned. By tradition, he writes Psalm 51 our openness, if, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we walk in the light, we walk in this fellowship, our sins will be revealed, we'll make the good confessions, we'll experience grace, and we'll be cleansed from our sins. If we pull away from the light, we tend to pull away from people, we fall into darkness, and we fall into that sort of guilt. So the communal dimension of this for John is really, really big. This is not a life you can fully live now on your own. Now, this does not mean everyone has to be an extrovert who likes to hang out with a bunch of people. It does mean we all need connection to the body. And we have to find our place, and, and we can do it a lot of different ways, but we, 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 we do need that. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and this word is not in us. And, and this, is, this is something that is significant, because um, Gnostic faith would tend to say that, that 
esoteric mental enlightenment was salvation. And this was center from, this was separate from like things you actually did. You, you could claim to have the gnosis and have a life that is, so if you say that you don't have sin, that's a deceptive thing. That for us, um, the result of receiving the apostolic witness, being in fellowship with each other, uh, and being cleansed is moral reformation, moral and ethical reformation loving better in our bodies right now, beginning with the people who are very closest to us. And that's why Christianity, you know, I think that's honestly one of the real reasons people don't like church, is at church you're forced to love people who are difficult, kind of like you. And and so, and if you have to be part of it, you have to keep going back, and you have to learn how to love, and you can't run away from it. And I think that I have a, I have kind of a, a, a suspicion about this that um, that our own experience of grace, of seeing that we are the man, begins to help us to look at others in a different way. Once the light uncovers my levels of mixed emotions and things, like oh yeah, then I can look at you. And, and move past my surface judgment like you did this and say, oh, maybe I don't understand. Maybe I understand a little bit more. Um, as I like to be understood, so I will understand. As God understands me, so I'll be a witness to understanding others that way. And that becomes an authentic. If we can do that in the church, I think that's a witness that people really want to be part of. That's more than just coming to church on Sunday, going through the motions, running out, and being the same sufferable person we were before. All right, there's that. Chapter one. We'll pick up chapter two um, next time. We've got like a chapter of times. So we work uh, five weeks with it, figure it out. Um, let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forevermore.